Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. Lorraine is still out of town. She is gallivanting across Italy. Any of our Facebook fans have seen the, um, pardon my French, but basically um, pornographic food imagery that she's been posting (laughs) on our (laughs) Facebook page. It is so enticing. I'm like, is this my new sexual orientation? Is the food that Meg is eating in, um, in Italy? <laughs> no, Lorian is eating. I am not eating that. I'm oh, did I say Meg? I meant to say Lorian. You Lauren, said Meg. I, um, I'm yeah. so happy for her. And she's sending pictures of her view and she's writing. It's like a dream, man. It's like a oh, dream. Oh, yeah. So well-deserved. Um, so good. But th- for this week, it's just me and Meg. What's our topic, Jeff? Yeah, we'll be doing a mailbag segment. So I've uh, collected some questions from our fans. And um, yeah, we'll be jumping in. All right, that'll be fun. So, but before we jump into the mail, um, let's do adventures in screenwriting. Uh, Meg, how was your week? <laughs> Should I go first? It's so weird not to have Lori near to go first. I oh, know. I well, we can start. ask Savannah. Savannah, you're on the line with us. Are you Savannah? feeling? Are you feeling uh, eager to share it all? I I can share. Sure. Hop in. <laughs> Yeah, no, I had a I had a good week last week. Um, I'm preparing for an exciting fellowship uh, with Sundance next week. So um, just doing all That's of my awesome. homework. I actually, Meg, I had to watch one of your story workshops uh, oh. as my homework. <laughs> so that was really cool seeing a familiar face. Um, but yeah, no, I um, I think in terms of my writing, I and find it because I also produce and I'm producing a short horror film feminist horror film in uh Massachusetts that's really coming up um and I'm actually finding it really hard to switch from my producer brain to writer brain in the same day um and so I'm trying to figure out a way where I'm just like okay Monday is producer day writing day is you know like a Tuesday yeah, or a that can work. Wednesday yeah that can work so I haven't really cracked it yet but um trying my best <laughs> no it's good and it'll never I, I'm starting to realize it'll never be cracked it's just going to be constantly shifting in today's day and I, I'm giving up this idea that everything will eventually settle into a routine I'm giving that up the whole idea it's just gonna be do best you can today that's my new motto <laughs> Yeah, I like that. And also just as a Gemini, it's hard to have like the same routine over and over. I I need to mix it up a little bit. So there's that crazy complication too. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, congratulations on all of that. Thank Uh, you. Yeah. How was your day, Jeff? Um, it's been good it's um i'm here for the heartland film festival in indianapolis which has just been such a fun experience and a great chance to meet other filmmakers and we're in competition in the category called the indiana spotlight competition which features other films made at least partially in indiana and there's like a film with elaine hendrix from parent trap in our category and cool documentaries so it's just been it's fun to feel like i'm kind of playing the big leagues a little bit Um, But of course, like when you take that step, you invite some challenges too. And I was, I'm going to get vulnerable here. I was panic texting Meg last last Saturday because 
reviews have started to kind of show up on blogs and on Twitter. And I was reading through tweets. You know, I did the thing that you probably don't, shouldn't why? do. Don't, <laughs> no. don't. I did the thing that you probably shouldn't do, but I like searched my movie on Twitter. And, oh um, my God. I will say a lot of people had really nice things to say. So, okay, like, that's good. That was good. Like I was, it's a very personal movie. So after every screening, like inevitably people come up and start telling me about their own lives and their own experiences with grief, which is really cool. And people were tweeting about that. And I saw one like tweet that was like a link to a review. And I was like, oh, cool. And this is like two hours before our second screening. So bad idea. Um, and I opened it up and this reviewer just did not like the movie, um, which is okay. You know, he had some, you know, he liked the performances, which is a nice compliment. At the time I started to panic and you know what it is? It was this feeling like I had let our, my team down. Like it's this feeling of all of a sudden there's this, these actors who are, it's their first feature too. And they're excited. And my wife, who's a producer on the movie, like we're hoping this can be a launching pad for a career for me. And it's that feeling of like, oh crap is this person who I'm like anointing as the arbiter of my success or my value as a creative? Like, is this gonna affect, like, it was almost a moment, I haven't had this often, but I was like, if I was a novelist, I could feel specifically like this was my own failure and only my failure. But I'm like, am I letting like my DP down who's like has some stake in this movie and like the actors. Aww, and... That is harder. I mean, yeah. that's absolutely an amazing uh, insight into it because as someone who's not a director, I never thought of that before, but of course it would feel that way. Absolutely. And of course, one Goomba review does right. not mean you let down anybody, by the way. I, I want to say that loud. You know, I was relieved because I was talking to um, <clears throat> my best friend who's an actor in the movie and um, as, he's also an associate producer on it because he helped me with casting and through passes of the script. And it's just a really smart story guy. He was like, Jeff, we saw the review. And I was like, oh crap. He's like, it's fine. He's like, we were laughing about it, whatever. Um, and he's like, you know what? They liked the performances. So even if you feel insecure, like you did your job with us, which is a nice thing to say. Um, and like, it did take a lot of pressure off me. And like, we got a much better review today in another blog, but you have to kind of accept, like if you're choosing to put your work out there, you're also choosing for people to have opinions about it. And that's actually their right. Like that is their prerogative and their right. And part of me should feel kind of honored that I'm like entering the club of, filmmakers who have gotten bad reviews you know well which is everybody there's is nobody everybody. there's nobody who hasn't had a bad review if right. not multiple if not hundreds I think it's just part of being an artist and because you know I think a lot of us as writers and I can't speak to the directing but as writers we come in because we want to connect and we want to express ourselves and we want to be seen and then somebody writes a bad review and you're like oh my god I expressed myself and tried to connect and you refused my connection and you you know it, it feels very personal yeah. but in fact it has nothing to do with you that person I, I I learned this really early I was a producer on a film called Home for the Holidays and some people really liked that movie and some people really didn't and uh I, you know at first I was very offended and upset by the bad reviews and then I read a review in which they referenced the alcoholic father and I was like wait what there's no alcoholic father in our movie and then I realized <laughs> in one scene he has a beer <laughs> wow that's it and I was like oh my god people project in all like people see what they want to see it's you know this person who reviewed it might have a problem with grief and so, you don't know how much of themselves is responding to what's coming at them it's so, so it's so particular um, you know, once you get up and for your next movie, Jeff and Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Deadline, then, you know, now, now you're into the business of it. And right. those are a little bit trickier, honestly. Um, but 
for now, just know it's a beautiful movie and everybody will bring what they bring to it. And in a way, it's kind of a compliment, you know? It's, you know, he it's saw true. the movie. And That's he took, I felt that he, way. He took the time to write the review. And it, it's just a funny thing too, where like to echo what you're saying, Meg, is like one review is like, Graham does a great job of like incorporating funny levity and avoiding maudlin themes. And then this review is truly like, it's a humorless movie and overly maudlin. And like for, for both reviews to use that word specifically, I was like, what, how interesting that you, they just have opposite opinions about the film. Like, yeah. And the same thing is happening with my father's dragon where one review is saying, you know, these thematics are adult and going to be challenging. And the next one is saying with childlike themes, expected <laughs> themes. And you're like, okay, well, it's the All same right. movie people. So uh, people hear or see what they wanted to see. Did they have a bad day? Did, are they tired? <laughs> like, you don't know. Yeah. Uh, and some people, you know, you know, watch movies to not like them because that's how they get more uh, views. Uh, especially right. once you're writing for Pixar people, people specifically just want their review to get up in the chain. So that yeah. they'll, um, so, well, congratulations. I will say congratulations. Thanks. Your first not wonderful review. It's a rite of passage. I feel it like is. it's, I, I have to quickly laugh though. My wife just texted me. I'm not going to say his name. I'll say Joe Schmo is the name, but she said, not me at work nexusing Joe Schmo to figure out how I can ruin his life. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. And it's and what also interesting about being reviewed is, you know, the expertise tone that's brought to it. Um, yeah. And you're, you know, sometimes you're like, well, what, what is your expertise? But there, the truth is, and I, and I want to talk about this today, if we have time, they're a member of the audience, so they do have expertise. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think a lot of times, even when we're writing, we forget our audience. Yeah. And that this is for an audience. And I'm not talking about you now, Jeff, because you did absolutely remember with your film. But, you know, uh, all a reviewer has to have is be an audience member. And and that's that's legit. And, you know, I'm in the same boat as you. All the reviews are coming out. Um, my father's dragon uh, premiered in London. And this is a film that I optioned the book rights with my friend, John Morgan, I think 15 years ago and brought on uh, a producer, Julie uh, Lynn and her partner, Bonnie Curtis. And then we brought on um, Cartoon Saloon. And by brought on, I mean, we begged them um, to do it. And we're lucky enough to get Nora to direct and it really became her movie as it should. And we worked on it for many, many years before I even went to Pixar to write Inside Out. And um, we started. And so it's really been a great kind of fulfilling thing to see it manifest in the world and to manifest so beautifully. I mean, Nora is just a genius and the art is amazing. But here come the reviews. And, you know, part of me was kind of, you know, preparing myself because I've been in the, in the lane, in the, in the shooting gallery before and um we're lucky enough that the reviews are generally positive and what's funny to me jeff is what my brain does even in the positive review i look for the single word of course <laughs> like one of the reviews i don't remember which one said um well the first act is written wrote they called the writing wrote and i was like oh my god what like that's the that I mean, all of these good reviews, and that's the only thing I can remember. Of course. <laughs> because it's some sort of protective hypervigilance uh, device in your brain. Uh, so, and it's my job to let that go and not focus on that and make sure to look at all the other quotes. And I'm lucky because my 
producers are amazing and they keep sending me the good quotes because they know me <laughs> and they know what I'm looking at. So, you know, that's been that's been kind of amazing. And my friend John, who I originally optioned with it, has since passed away. So it's also really wonderful to see something that he touched creatively come out into the world. And I'm happy for his family as well. And the other thing for my week that I have to talk about <clears throat> is I went on my screenwriting safari. And uh, I just want to say beyond the six hours a day of game drives, because you get up at five in the morning and you're out on game drives before the sun comes up and you're back by nine um, or 10. And then you go again in the evening um, and you're doing the lab in between. Beyond this, the profound experience of being on all those game drives, which is basically, it's a meditative experience out driving for hours out into the bush. And then all of a sudden there's a leopard walking towards your truck and all your adrenaline goes, and zing, which very much like writing, I guess, right? Like, like this is kind of boring. And then all of a sudden, zing, holy shit. It's the lava the creeping lava, up. Exactly. Um, and plus just bonding with all those people in the trucks and stuff. It was really great. But in terms of the actual lab, I wanted to share with you guys um, first of all, I was very proud of my writers. I had four writers and I pushed those writers. I They had homework every night, which is crazy. I don't know if any other group, I don't think any other group had homework, but it was all if they wanted to do it. Um, and, you know, they did. They all did their homework. They all came back. We we went over and over every time we were together. All four of them had to go up and um, they were all brave and open and, you know, it made me think on the ride, 30 hour plane ride home about labs. And I've been to many, many labs, Sundance Lab, Cinestory. I've mentored at many labs, the, the Meryl Streep Lab. And I just thought I'd talk a little bit real quickly about, you know, what happens, what, what I can see happening in these labs as you're working with a writer. And the first thing is, if the writer's brave, which all four of mine were this time, that lava does come up. It can come up literally in the room as you're asking questions. And the first way that I know the lava is coming up, the most profound way, if it's a lot of lava, if it's literally brain-breaking lava, because you're shifting a view, uh, all of a sudden they go, wait, what? What did you say? It's like, it's like you're not speaking English. Like they literally fuzz out to the point that they can't hear you. They literally cannot take in the words that I'm saying. And I'm still talking about, this is not, none of these were autobiographical. I'm talking about a broad, you know, genre movie, but I'm literally saying, you know, well, what if he was the bully? And what? What? Like it doesn't, and you're like, okay, fuzzing out. We are right on top of it. Stay with me. Or suddenly, you know, th their thoughts start fracturing and they're talking about six different things or they're starting, they're telling me tributary stories about things that we're not even talking about. These are all the brains starting to go, look somewhere else, look somewhere else, don't look at that, don't look at that. Um, you know, it just starts, your thinking starts to get very crowded. Either you completely fuzz out or you start, or you go into judgment immediately. Well, I don't want to do that. That's, that's, and then, you, you know, you judge it or, um, that's not my plan. That's not what I wanted to do. Like they're trying to hold on so tight to the ground that they were standing on two seconds ago. But because you start to dig into it, their brains, and it's just part of my job in giving these notes is not trying to make a safe space so they don't feel like they need ground and literally just saying, stay, stay here, stay with me. 
just consider that question. What if he was the bully? Just stay with me right now. Just let's, it's just an idea. It's just a story, you know? And it was so amazing to watch the brains um, and each of them, all of them did it. All of them went into the lab and I was really um, proud of them. And the other thing I wanted to say about lab work in terms of this kind of one-on-one -on -one or one-on-four work is um, I found myself constantly, and, and Dan O'Shannon, who was there, um, also talked a lot about this at the lab, which is, I guess I, I want to make a little announcement, which is I have spent now 100 episodes a year, two years, however long this has been, talking about lava. And it is important to me. I just did a whole little thing about it. But the other thing you have to do as a writer is also do the audience. Lava is not just about memoir writing. I'm not saying don't write your memoir screenplay. Do, right? Get it up. Let it walk around in its own memoir. If that's what you want to do, do. It'll be a great sample. I'm not saying don't do that. But most of your writing as a professional writer will not be memoir writing in terms of the actual story plot. It will be within a genre. It'll be a broad idea. It, it will be for an audience that has to be entertaining, that has to be, if it's not genre-based, it's at least think, you have to at least think about what are you doing? What is in the trailer? What, why are people gonna wanna see this? You do very much still have to ask those questions. And a lot of the work I was doing on the safari was trying to even with my writers, but also every writer gets a chance to pitch to everybody was distill it down, distill it down. What path are you on? What genre is this? What is the tone? And tone is not plot. We, can, we should do a whole show on tone. Tone is about what do you want the audience to feel, right? What kind of comedy is this? Is it super broad? Is it dark? Is it twisty? Is it Cone Brothers? Where are we? Like I, to even give you notes, I have to know, distill it down for me. Where are we? Well, I and you'll get people responding. Well, I want it to be really broad and funny, but there's really deep, dramatic, dark moments too. And I'm like, but you got to pick a lane. I'm not saying that that broad mo movie can't have a moment of that, but distill it down, distill it down. And I think sometimes when we talk about lava, people think that I'm talking about only indie film or memoir. And not at all, within a genre movie, a broad genre movie, you can have and should have lava, right? Coming up as subtext. It's the subtext, it's the emotional subtext of the sugar and the candy that everybody's coming to see the movie for. And that was a lot of the work that I was doing was getting them to say, well, give me other movies for tone. Who's, you know, who's in this movie? Sometimes that helps me to identify it for them. So, and the last thing I'll say is um, the other thing I just kept asking over and over and over, not just at this lab, but at all, every lab is, what is the relationship I care about? Uh, and, and this is a very big question that I think people assume they're doing, right? And I'm not saying you can't have a million relationships, go for it, have as many relationships as you want, but what's that core centering relationship that I deeply, deeply care about these two people in relationship. They can be in relationship and hate each other. I don't, it's not about, I'm not talking about loving each other, but I care about this relationship. When do I care about it? I hope it's sometime in act one. When is it happening? Because it's a centering for the whole movie. 
Um, and like when on the plane ride home, I watched the entire season of Somebody Somewhere. <laughs> and I watched- It is so good. It's so good. But what you care, not that you don't care about her on her own, you do, they do a lot of great work to make you love her. But what I personally really loved was her and her friend. Yes. Like that's why I keep wanting to watch the next show yeah. because I love him too, but I really love them together. Mm -hmm. Like they make you love her and they make you love him. And then them together is like this third thing. It's yeah. almost like a third character, right? And that doesn't mean you don't have scenes that they're not together. Of course you do. But really the centering of that show was him and her. And it's such a great relationship and watching it move and change and and how they affect each other. And that is why we're watching. It For feels so like the X factor, sorry to interrupt Meg, that's but okay. it's the thing that makes the show special, right? Cause there are kind of versions of that show that have explored similar themes, but like, to me, that's like the dynamite, like I'm interrupting, but I just couldn't. No, no, more. go for it. No, because I mean, I really, that show is doing things that are so great in terms of, you know, presenting a woman of this size and, and so many things that they are breaking boundaries and letting her be a main character um, and, and her, her movement as a character. But, and I love all that stuff and I'm glad it's in the show and I, and I applaud it. But honestly, if I'm really honest, the reason I'm hitting next episode is because of him and her together. Like the rest of the stuff is kind of intellectual in my brain. Like, oh, I'm so glad they're doing this, but I emotionally want to watch it because I really want to see him and her together. Then I watched, because I have 30 hours, people. Well, I had to work, but I, I was writing scenes. That's right. I was writing movie scenes over the Atlantic, but I also watched a movie that I don't know if I should say what it is. It's a it's a period piece, which by the way, huge. I'm the audience. Count me in. I love period movies. And the problem is it just didn't, it had a lot of great different relationships. Honestly, great different relationships, really good acting. It's not even about the writing. The director is like one, is an, a huge director. None of these elements are not good. They're all good. But I ultimately, when I turned it off, I was like, I didn't care about any relationship. Like I kind of most cared about everybody in it individually, but I didn't care about any, and they had relationships, but they didn't let anything center the movie. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it didn't give enough time to one thing to let me dig in and be like, oh, I love that. Let that center the whole movie. And I'm sure the creators could tell us which one they think it is. And maybe it was just me. Again, we talked about sometimes this is where you are. Maybe I was tired, who knows? Um, but it really brought home to me this idea of really look at your work. Yes, look at the lava, push to the lava, but always also be asking at some point, what is this movie? Why do audiences want to see this movie? Um, and that audience may be an independent film that wants to be pushed. I'm not talking about, it doesn't have to be a broad audience, but who is your audience? Distill it down. What is this movie? What is the genre? People who say genre movies and turn up their nose, that just makes me laugh. It is so much harder to do a great lava-filled genre movie. So much harder. So, you know, haha. And then, you know, main relationship. What is the centering relationship? And if you can give me those three things, like if I was coming to help you with your script and you were able to tell me, this is about this because emotionally, this is my lava. This is my subtext. This is the tone I'm going for. This is the genre I'm going for. This is why I think audiences will, you know, pay the 12 bucks for this movie. And this is the centering relationship. I'm done. I got it. Let's go. I can help you with that for 
ever. But a lot of the work I do is just trying to figure out what those are, trying to help you articulate those three things. And there's other things, of course, but those were the three big things from the safari that came into my mind as I took my plane ride home. So I wanted to share them. Well, I think there's a good first question, Meg, that actually connects to what you're saying. And, um, you know, I was going to say the names of the folks who submitted these questions, but just for the sake of protection, I'm just going to say one of our wonderful fans submitted a question that says, when rewriting that 20 layer cake first draft, so like, I guess you've gotten your vomit draft out, you're going back in for the rewrite, out of all the possible elements to focus on, is a draft of the protagonist's agency most foundational, the main relationship most foundational, or some other through line like the plan or the story? Well, the plan would be part of your character's agency, right? Because it's mm -hmm. connected to goal. The plan is what is gonna keep your main character creating the movie, not just reacting to it. So agency and plan is the same bucket. Um, what's most foundational to me is still, what is it about? Even if it's just a word, like you've got your vomit draft out and you've been talking to people and emotionally, this is, it feels somehow about redemption. Okay, great. That just, that's all we need to know for that. Just so that's in your mind, that that's the subtext. That's because that goes to character arc. So I always but I have to know what genre I'm doing. I have to know, I have to know what world am I in? Where am I? And that can change in a vomit draft, right? You might think, oh, this is going to be a rip-roaring comedy. And by the middle of your vomit draft, you're like, yeah, it's not so funny. It's not, uh, it's not a laugh riot, but it is making me cry. And that's okay. So I guess first, what, you know, foundational for me is always arc, because within the arc is agency, within the arc is thematic, because whatever they learned at the end of act two is emotionally what this is about. Um, so foundationally for me, if I have a vomit draft, first I go to arc and I create the structure from the arc and what how that character is moving. And then, uh, and then the next thing hand in hand with that is the main relationship and then the tone genre, what is this? And it's super important, the tone and genre and audience, it's so important. Um, because it could be completely different movies. I could give that same arc to five writers and give them five different tones and they will, it will be completely different movies, right? So uh, I would say foundational for me. And again, guys, this is just me. If you we brought in Sheila Hanrahan Taylor, she would say poster trailer, like she would foundationally go the other direction. So it's really, um, you know, pick what you want. But um, for me, it's arc. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I wanna see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. 
And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD, S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Great. Um, another question we got, um, it's a little long, but I think the context is important. So I'm just going to read this whole thing. I, I was wondering if there was a space on your podcast to talk about difficult career choices you've made. You certainly covered this topic in some of your episodes specifically, but I'm wondering if any of you have ever had to make a choice between a personal relationship in your career and how you feel about that now. I've done this recently and I jeopardized a decade long friendship because I pulled out of a project with this friend and chose to take an opportunity that would benefit my career. This was a passion project and very close to their hearts. I gave them as much notice as I could and pulled out not quite at the 11th hour, but close to. They took this personally and I understand that I've hurt them, that they have every right to be angry with me, disappointed in me, and but this other opportunity is already helping me build my career in an exceptional way. I guess I'm just reconciling with making a career-driven decision at the cost of a personal relationship and whether or not I feel like I've done the right thing. I mean, you know, that's such a hard question and it's such a personal question and it so depends on the situation. So I can't speak to specifically this situation in terms of, I guess, uh, uh, two things. One is it speaks to what is the commitment? And and a lot of times when we're helping friends, we intuitively do not want to shine a light on the specifics of the commitment because up front, it makes us feel like we're not being a good friend. We're not just all in 120%. I'm your friend. I'm helping you. That Especially women, sorry to say, but we're taught that we, we don't get to say, this is what I have to give. We don't get to say that. We're all or nothing. But we have to learn to do that because what happens on the other end is this kind of problem where you the commitment's a little fuzzy, right? So on one hand, and again, I don't know this particular situation, so maybe there was a clear commitment. But I would be super clear before helping anybody long-term more than just kind of read a script, like I'm going to help produce this. I'm going to give you notes throughout the whole process, whatever that is, that it is very clearly defined what you are committing to in terms of how much, how long, right? I mean, dude, some of these independent films take, I, I just, movie just came out 15 years. Julie Lynn and Bonnie Curtis committed to this movie, <laughs> 15 years right? That's not every single day, but these things last. And that, number one, that's why you have to love the project. And if you are committing to something that, i.e., you're going to do this somewhat long-term with them, i.e., help them produce a short film, you better love it because there will come a moment where you might have to give up something for yourself because you made this commitment, right? So I don't know what the commitment was made, um, but first, always be very clear upfront what you're committing to in terms of how much and time. And then um, you know, I, I do think that, um, it's easy to say, listen, I'm a female raised Catholic. So my upbringing survival brain is, well, you have to give everything to everybody and you have to be a good person and you should never, ever pick yourself over somebody else. And yet, I don't know. I, I think that that's not realistic. And I think you're allowed to pick yourself. I do. I think you're allowed to. I think you're allowed to say, I also need a career. 
this is an amazing opportunity for me. If you were my friend, I would be completely disappointed in you in terms of because I planned on something or whatever. I might be disappointed, but I would also hopefully eventually say, I'm happy for you, right? Because we should both be in this together. This isn't a one-sided thing. This is a, we're both trying to get ahead in our careers. Um, so I would hope that eventually your friend can say that. Um, so I can never say you should always not pick yourself. Sometimes you have to pick yourself. Now, I have had the opposite experience, again, Catholic, which is I stepped away from an amazing opportunity for me as a writer and to earn a lot of money, P.S., and I stepped away from it to help someone else. And it was a big mistake. It was a huge mistake. Um, and, you know, mistakes are there to teach you and illuminate and it illuminated, I'll tell you, because the problem is if you're a writer who's only stepping onto something to help someone else as a creative, that don't work because it's not of you. It's not part of your passion guts. So number one, you don't fully know how to write it. You're kind of guessing. You're gonna have another cook in the kitchen that you're just trying to help them. So it's now the power dynamics are slightly off, right? Because you're helping them, so it's theirs, and yet now you're creatively responsible for it. Th those power dynamics start to get really weird, and um, and you have to deliver, and it's not of your guts, and you have to perform and create, and um, and then eventually it literally crashed into flames, into just spectacular, I must say, spectacular flames, because it wasn't on my path. I stepped off my path. I got seduced by uh, somebody with tears in their eyes begging me to help them. I got seduced by the kind of ego of it, right? Because I was going to get to co-direct this. So that felt great. Wow. And I got seduced by the people asking me to do it, who are big hoo-hahs, big. And it's it, it was a mistake. Um, I'm glad I did it because I learned. But I literally, gosh, you guys, I lost. If, if I had stayed on that project, and who knows? You never know. You can't go back in time. I might have been fired the next day. Who knows? But, you know, I lost a lot of money too. So I am more on the side of, you have to take a deep breath in those moments and um, and to keep on the table picking yourself and more than not pick yourself. Um, again, if I had made a commitment before the opportunity came, I probably would have found, tried to find a way to, to honor that commitment, um, even if it was replacing myself right? I would help them replace myself, but just because that's, you know, my upbringing, like, I'm not saying you want anybody else has to do that, but I probably, if I had made a clear commitment, I'm going to be on this, I don't know, I'm going to produce your movie in the desert next weekend. And I'm suddenly not in the desert next weekend. That's kind of a big deal, right? So I would probably be producing the movie in the desert because everybody's depending on you. So it depends on what the commitment level is, but it's, oh, make sure your commitment's clear and it's okay to pick yourself um, and be very careful of choosing things to help other people just to help other people, to get the ego hit of that. I mean, let's get real. There is an ego hit to helping other people, to coming in and quote unquote, saving people. There is a little bit of an ego hit to that. There's an identity in that. And I'm not saying that's not a good identity. I, 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 I love helping people, right? But it can't be uh, the only thing if you also want to be a writer or an artist yourself, right? That's called sh being a shadow artist. So that you have to be careful. Of. I think if I could quickly hop into, yeah, of course. You, you touched on it, Meg, but 
I do think your truest friends should recognize and embrace when you get big opportunities, even if it brings out insecurity in you. You know, I've had friends that I've worked on things with and they get staffed or they get a big opportunity. And the darkest part of you, the insecure artist part of you, feels your heart break and is tempted to feel resentful for a second. But you have to step outside of yourself and recognize like, this is my friend and their fucking dreams are coming true. Like I go, 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 go. And I agree. You, you really, a, a good friend, I think will be like, well, fuck you, but you gotta go. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> you, but I, I'm also like so happy for you. <laughs> but you have to go. I mean, it's an opportunity. And the truth uh, is if your friends are succeeding, you should hold on to those friendships. You know what? There's nothing dumber than burning a bridge with someone whose career is rocketing away because chances are you can hold on to that wing if you maintain a good relationship with you. And it's, it's not your superiors who bring you up. It's usually your peers. So hundred percent, it's your peers and you're all going to come up in the business together and you're all going to rely on each other. I mean, it's interesting though, and this is probably getting too psychological, but you know, if you find yourself unable to get away from the resentment of the success, you got to go look at yourself. Like you are projecting potentially onto that person, your own shit. Like if you were raised with the belief that everybody will let you down because that was the safest way to survive your childhood. Well, the next time somebody says, I have an opportunity, I have to go, you're going to see it as letting you down. And you're going to be like, well, there we go. There we go. Everybody lets me down and you're going to burn it down instead of catch yourself. That's not what's happening. You know, that person maybe is letting you down in this moment in terms of expectation, but they didn't commit to that or you have to be happy for them or whatever. You have to be very careful of what you're projecting. Um, and the, I mean, honestly, I sometimes will have somebody find out a friend is doing something spectacular and I will have that brief moment of, <laughs> I'm more, I am never mad at them. I'm always thrilled for them, but I start to beat myself up about, why yeah. don't I have that? Why, I'm such an idiot. Why did I not choose that life path so that I could be blah, blah, blah. And then I have to catch myself and be like, wait, 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 do I even want to do that? Like I literally the other day, I was like, I went into a rabbit hole for a second. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't even want that job. <laughs> like I wouldn't even, if you offered me that job, I'd say no. Okay. Okay. That was just weird. That was just crazy stress. Um, so I agree. I agree. Um, well, I think that's super helpful and helped me. So thanks to, the, to our question asker there. Um, another question here. Um, my question is in regard to screenplay word economy with both dialogue and screen direction on the page. Almost religiously, I find myself using synonyms or shaving down dialogue just to remain inside my designated page count. A dialogue example, if the last word being used is buddy, if the last word being used buddy is one letter too long, creating a line breakdown to two lines, I'll swap out buddy with pal or a block of dialogue ends with, you gotta be kidding me, could become no way. Is this a common practice? I understand scripts require a level of balance and harmony to serve the honesty of story and dialogue, but sometimes I wonder if I'm being a slave to page count. What do you think? You are being a slave to page count. Um, never, ever, ever, I can say this with confidence, ever, ever change your dialogue for page count. You might cut dialogue because you realize, oh, wait, they're saying this twice. This is the same information. That's editing. But changing it like from buddy to pal, no. Does Is this the kind of character who would say buddy or would he say pal or she? It's kind of different right? And what is the tone of that buddy and pal? And if, if is the person saying pal to me, what does that mean in the relationship, right? No, 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 no. You, 
So page count is first handled by taking a hard look at your story. Do you have scenes that are repeating information and that you really don't need, even though you love that line of dialogue or you love that location or whatever reason that you're keeping it in? But the truth is, it would be much cleaner, faster, more great, you know, nuance, more articulated story if you just cut it. Then just cut that whole scene, right? Like that is the first thing you have to do. And it is it is part of being a writer is getting enough objectivity on your work to start cutting. And sometimes I will take a draft and I'll be like, well, you guys, it, we're not working on the typewriter anymore. Just cut it. Just cut it down to the bone. Cut the script down to the bone. Do you miss it? Is the script hurting that you cut that out when you go back and read it? Because oftentimes, no, it is not. I tend to overwrite. So this is a big part of my writing process. I'm going so fast sometimes with Pixar that the director will be do that with me. Like, we don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. And I'm, I, I'm used to that now because I do tend to overwrite in my scenes and sequences. So that's the first thing. You just have to be really look at the core story and what scenes can you take out? What scenes are way too long? Where are you entering? Where are you exiting them? Be an editor. I hope you all have gotten into an edit bay and watch an editor work. Be an editor. Then the next thing is, that's okay. Now you've done it. You've done all the ruthless stuff. Now it's time. Okay, you just need two pages out of this, right? You cannot turn in 120 pages. It's got to be at most 118, 116. Yeah, then you go look for widows, right? You go look for scene descriptions that are too much and character descriptions that are too much and, and widows. Like you can get a page and a half to two pages out with widows. It's crazy. I don't care how much you change scene description, get those widows out. That's what you should do. But don't ever go after the character and their dialogue. No, absolutely not. And Meg, just for our listeners, could you remind them what you mean by like widow words in a screenplay? So like, let's say you have a scene description and this, and you have one or two words that then return over. And so it's literally like two solid line sentences and then two words. No, that's a widow that's taking up a lot of space in your draft if you if you need page count issues. And then you just rewrite that description so that widow is gone. Um, and that's super easy to do. And you can't imagine how many pages you're going to get out of that. Um, and every writer does that. And don't ever change margins to try to sneak this. Don't ever change the font. I, at the lab, somebody asked me, why is it always got to be courier font? And I'm because they're timing the movie. They know the size of your font. They know how to time the movie off of it, right? So they'll know if you're changing the margins and, and font, don't do it. One of our listeners asks, what if you write something that feels like all lava? It strikes so close to home on every page that it's hard to view objectively. Any advice on how to connect emotionally to the work yet separate yourself from what is happening on the page? And I'm glad this question came up, Meg, because I feel like you kind of touched on this earlier of lava versus audience a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Lorian has the best answer to this, which is you do need to make at a base level something very different in the character than who you are to separate them out from yourself. They are not you. So give them an opposite um, personality trait or, you know, a lot of times, you know, <laughs> my female characters were, are much braver than I am. They're much more in your face. They will say things to character that I wouldn't, I think it, but I never say it, you know, like, at some point, your characters are a version of you, but they are some fantasy version of you. So let them have some traits that you don't have. Um, and that helps your brain start to separate it out. Um, and then I would go, you're right, Jeff, I would go to, you know, what is this? What genre is this? What audience is this? You know, who who in your wildest dreams would you cast 
because that really starts to help in an odd way get tone or you know um it can even if the, if this actor is playing the same kind of character multiple times it can help you see what you're not doing again you don't want to mimic it but you it, it can give you good insight um so i would say it is still a story it is still a story for an audience it's still a genre right even if you're not doing a genre movie right it still has a tone to it so think about the poster right so if you're getting really deep into the lava and you're starting to get that fuzzy bit first of all it's so good you're right on it maybe go to therapy for a couple of weeks and because here it is it's up and walking around um but uh and if you're in the fuzzy bit you should you know a good friend uh can help you you know stay stay um but ultimately try to go back to you know this is supposed to be also entertainment right now again for indie film entertainment can be something that's really pushes you emotionally intellectually and i'm so i'm not saying it has to be you know yippee kayo happy entertainment but it's entertaining something about it is entertainment um so think about your audience try to go there for a little while right um when i talk about lava it is subtext it is not context right it is not the context of the scenes. It is the subtext of the scenes. So maybe if you're getting lost, go over to the context and just have fun. Let that lava bubble, but now bring in that other part of your brain that loves to be a writer and loves to think what could happen next and what plot thing could happen and what would be the twist and what would the audience never see coming? And the lava's there. It will start to fill in the cracks. You know what I mean? It'll, it'll fill in the cracks of that. And it's still actually working with you now that you have it up, but now go and be a writer and write for the audience, write for the fun of it, write for the entertainment of it, um, write for the context of it now. I think Meg, like our recent Jen Grisanti episode, which is just such a good episode, we talked a lot about defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms. And I think oftentimes those are the armor that we can put on our characters to sort of bury some of that lava a little bit. So when you talk yeah, absolutely. about, when you talk about subtext, I think one of the quickest ways to help create subtext if you're having trouble is what kind of joke would the character make about this? What kind of like flippant disregard for what they're really feeling would the character say about this? And I, I find at least in my own writing, like trying to find the funny way in is sometimes a really helpful way to help make that lava feel a little more entertaining. Um, yeah, and if, yeah, you can do it funny, you can do it scary, you can yeah. do it up in your face, you know? So yeah, I think that I, I love that episode too. Um, I love being with her on the safari, Jen, super smart. Um, that coping mechanism. So when we talk about lava and your character will never say the lava directly. And if they do, it's gonna be like the end of act two, but it's still expressed through the context of the story, right? So lava really comes up into context at the end of act two. And the rest of it is the coping mechanism before that getting broken down and them learning the ropes of that subtext. And then the climax, it's how do they externalize it by doing an action, a behavior that proves that lava, but that lava is not, not, is not the, is not the climax. Does that make sense? Like the lava has already come up in terms of their end of act two. So now they have to do something to prove they've changed because they've faced the lava. So they have to go stop the bank robbery they have to go whatever they have to do from the plot standpoint so yeah go back to coping mechanisms in terms of character go back to big questions like genre tone go to plot and have some fun i love that 
Um, we have one last question here. And so this comes from a listener who says, my question is about open writing assignments. How much time and effort do you spend on these? I find myself spending a lot of time, strike that, a lot of unpaid time trying to crack a story that an exec has flippantly put out there. I was just curious to see what your strategies with OWAs are. Also, do you try to put theme, meaning, and lava into the outline you come back with? I'm finding a lot of the OWAs I'm pitching on are action films, and I don't find theme coming from the inside of stories like this. Sure, I can layer something on top of that, like family or trust, but it feels contrived and corny to me. Would love to know if you have any tricks of the trade when it comes to the old OWA. Well, of course, there's a difference between an OWA when you're at a point in your career that you can say that's not for me, and then you're at a part in your career where you're really hustling to you need that job. Um, so I say that all with respect. Um, for so for me, I have found that if I am just hustling and there isn't something emotional or personal in there for me, by the way, even if it's just family, that's a good word. Let's let's. There's a lot in there, right? Like. Um, there, there's a lot of emotional thematics within that word family. Um, if I don't have that, I can't take the assignment because I will tank it and it will not be good. And then you don't have a very long career, honestly, if you tank enough open writing assignments, that's that. So I would say if the genre doesn't appeal to you, is there an, you know, that's already hard, right? Um, but if you can find yourself writing an action movie, I do think you have to find something that has meaning to you within that um, and has characters that you can get behind, that you're like, I fucking love those. I, I have found a door into these characters and I fucking love this character. And even though I don't really know the rest of it, I can be with this character. I can commit to this character. I was just talking to my son. I can't remember. Oh, we saw fire trucks and he was worried that there was somebody on a building. There wasn't, but he was worried. That's why they were there. And I'm like, and then we drove a little while and I was like, God, it's like that opening. It's like that scene where you meet Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon. And he's trying to talk down. He's trying to talk down the jumper and all of a sudden he grabs the guard's arm. He's like, well, then let's just do it. You want to jump? Let's jump. And suddenly the jumper's going, no, no, wait, what, what? And he goes, let's just do it. Let's just jump. And he jumps off the building and grabs the guy and pulls him off the building because the, 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 they, they put the, 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 the inflatable thing down there. Right. And that guy immediately, you're like, what? It's such a great character introduction. You're like, I love that guy. That guy's crazy. And then who's his main relationship? A guy who wants to retire and I'm too old for this shit. You're like, I can write that action movie because it's about those people. It's about those characters. I love those characters. I want to see those characters together. I want to see that relationship. I want to see how they earn their trust together. I want to see how they quote unquote fall in love. I want to see how they become best friends. I want to see how they betray each other, how they push each other, um, how they illuminate each other. Like if you can get in that action movie, what is this about? And if you can't get that, so it's about families, about trust, whatever, then it is, but at least love the characters and the relationships because that's what the action is bringing out. You're putting those characters into that action sequence because it will illuminate the relationship. It will illuminate the characters sometimes individually, but then it mostly will illuminate the relationship and what that relationship is gonna be pushed to do. And it, listen, I say this like, I oh, I do this all the time. I'm telling you guys, I can write whole sequences where I'm like, this is so funny and this is great action. And then I'm like, oh shit, There's, this has nothing to do with the relationship. I, we have to go back because if it, it has to be about the relationship. It has to be about what's going on between them and what's pushing the main character. So 
In terms of open writing assignments, if I can find that and I can walk into the room and pitch it from my guts because I love these characters, then I don't even care if they pass on me in a way because I'm like, then you don't want to do that. Okay, that that's what I would write because I love these characters. I love this situation with these characters in it emotionally. Um, and honestly, I think that's what people get excited about giving you the job. If you're just one more writer walking in and saying, here's a, a action sequence you've never seen before, which by the way, you also have to do. Um, but if that's all you're doing, I don't think you're gonna, It's you won't get the job because they do want all of that deeper uh, uh, commitment to the story and to the characters. And they want you to love it as much as they love it, right? They're, they're paying for it, so they must love it, right? They must love something about it. Um, so if your door, if that lines up together, then that's a good match. That's so wise, Meg. I think too, you mentioned it's feeling corny or cheesy. And I'm guessing, I used to be on a desk reading all the time. And whenever those scripts would feel inauthentic, it was because it felt like the writer had externalized what you're talking about in a way that doesn't feel real. So the core relationship or the emotional journey that these characters have to take, if you're if you're getting the note of we need a family situation, this is a really bad off the top pitch, but like just throwing them in a family reunion isn't going to create that. But if you set the context and the depth of an estranged father with his daughter that are having to come together for some reason, and now they're on this journey together in an action movie, there's going to be more meat on the bone there. So I just, I'm echoing what you're saying, Meg, but it feels yeah. like rather than Oops. externalizing something or just injecting generic situations, go back to like why these characters, why this relationship for this movie? Well, and again, this is a really great example of what I'm talking about lava. So I think the reason my brain will always remember Lethal Weapon is because I know this relationship. I know the relationship between somebody who's really tired and just wants to fucking stop and a person who's you know, pushing so hard, almost with a death wish. Like it's very familiar to me. Um, and so you could write Lethal Weapon and nobody will ever know that's you and your mom. It's fucking Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in an action movie. But the truth is that's you and your mom. That's the lava. You don't have to write a memoir about you and your mom. And please do. I'm not saying don't do that. But you can write an action movie about you and your mom or you and your sister or whatever, or what you observed. I mean, it's not as easy when you observe your dad and your mom, but that can work too. It's better if you're in there. But, you know, I, right now, I have a special needs son. There's days that I'm like, oh my God, I'm so tired. And he is just still going, you know? So I can write that relationship. Um, so it's just something, another a way to illuminate when I'm talking about lava, what I'm talking about. It's, this, it is the, it's the deep, deep personal mirror upon which you're exploring a relationship, but that relationship doesn't have to look externally like what you're exploring, right? Like it's not a mother and a child, it's a, two cops, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be one-to-one -one, and it shouldn't be. It's go have fun with all the external stuff you can play with um, while still exploring the stuff underneath. Brilliant, Meg. Thank you so much. That's like opening up my own thing I'm really fighting against right now. So thank you so much. And thank you so much to all of our amazing listeners. We really do love you. We Those are such sharp questions. And I will say a good question comes from a good writer. So to all of you who are yes, struggling yes. out there and, you know, maybe if you're like me and feeling really stuck on the page, 
you're brilliant because you're a writer and because you listen to our show. We already know you have really good taste. So, <laughs> so thanks to yes. our great question askers. And Meg, thanks to you for your brilliant responses and congrats oh, well. on the movie. We're so excited thank for you. you. I can't thank wait to see you. it. Yes, I'm waiting for the um, another shoe to drop. Um, so yes. if you know, thanks everybody for listening. And if you haven't joined, we highly recommend that you join the TSL Facebook group. It's a beautiful place to meet other writers and find additional support outside of the show. And I've heard, you know, there's pro writers on there too who are having a great time answering questions. So it's it's not it's not just emerging writers on there. There's all different levels and everybody's jumping in to help each other. So um, go over there. And if and if you even want more support, we have a great Patreon site where we can speak to you more directly one-on-one and we'd love to have you over there too. And remember, you are not alone. Keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.